Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do in the face of an international disaster decades in the making? That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. Inside Sources. Behind-the-scenes experience in Washington and around the world. Here's the opinion page editor of the Deseret News, Boyd Matheson, on KSL News Radio 102.7 FM and 1160 AM. Welcome to Inside Sources on a Wednesday. This is Boyd Matheson, opinion editor of the Deseret News. Thanks for joining us. Uh, very pleased to be joined on the line today by Senator Mike Lee, Utah's senior senator. Spent the day, uh, his birthday actually, spent that day at an event dealing with housing. So Senator Lee, one happy birthday. Yeah, exactly. As you were pointing out a moment ago, nothing says happy birthday quite like spending the day with HUD. <laughs> There you go. So tell us tell us about this event. Uh, it was obviously dealing with innovation in housing, affordability in housing. What was the, the main thrust there? What did you learn? Well, we had this event on the National Mall. It was hosted by the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development. And the purpose of our discussion uh, was to focus on the affordability of housing. I focused some of my remarks on the fact that uh, the American family has taken a hit in recent years on many levels. Families are being formed at a later age. People are getting married later, and in part as a result of that, they're having fewer children. A smaller percentage of our children are being born to parents who are married to each other. That, uh, in turn, creates some problems because we, we know statistically from a wide range of sources that people are a whole lot more likely to be healthy, to do better in school, to graduate from high school, to graduate from college. Uh, less likely to be victims of physical abuse or sexual violence if they have two parents who are married to each other. So what does this have to do with housing? Well, it has a lot to do with it. One of the reasons why people are putting off marriage and having children uh, relates to the lack of affordable housing. So we had a couple of guests with us talking about how we can make housing more affordable. We had uh, Chris Gambrilis, the president of Ivory Development, and Dustin Haggett, the founding partner of Moto Living in Salt Lake. Uh, both companies are, are Utah homegrown businesses, and I was thrilled to have them there. We talked about some solutions, uh, some approaches that might make housing more affordable, and we hope be better for American families. Oh, that's that's great, and I, I love the fact that you were able to to pull in, uh, as you always do, uh, a Utah connection and a Utah model in terms of dealing with that. We know that that housing, even in Utah, has become less affordable over the years, and that there are a lot of folks struggling. Uh, what did you learn from our our Utah folks in terms of innovation and things that are happening to to actually help with that? Well, both companies, uh, both Chris and Dustin, spoke about things that they're doing in order to bring down costs about ways that they're, uh, they're, they're examining the prospect of 
circumventing or streamlining their compliance with regulatory compliance issues, including land use planning, uh, zoning, and things like that. And um, one of the purposes of modal living, um, uh, as Dustin Haggett pointed out, is to make housing more affordable by uh, allowing a lot of housing to be manufactured off-site. You can make it much more of an assembly line-like construction. One of the reasons why Henry Ford's assembly line was so revolutionary is that it made it more possible for more Americans to afford an automobile. And so too here, what we're going to see is that as we make the construction of housing a more systematic assembly line type process, more people will be able to afford houses. Oh, that's great. If you're just joining us, we have Utah Senior Senator Mike Lee joining us. Uh, was part of an event yesterday there on the mall with HUD, talking about innovative ways to deal with housing, housing prices, affordability, sustainability, all of those things. And I wanted to shift gears a little bit on you, Senator, because I know you also introduced this week a, a bipartisan piece of legislation, one that uh, you've worked on over the years, in particular with Senator Dianne Feinstein from California. You also had Ted Cruz and Sheldon Whitehouse from Rhode Island, Susan Collins from Maine, and others that were part of the Due Process Guarantee Act. Uh, tell our listeners why why this one matters and why you keep swinging uh, to get this one right. The purpose of this bipartisan effort, the Due Process Guarantee Act, which I just reintroduced with Senator Feinstein and, and the other colleagues you mentioned, is to clarify that the federal government has to honor its obligations under the U.S. Constitution and that it can't simply go out and claim the right to indefinitely detain a U.S. citizen apprehended on U.S. soil, that there are due process protections that go along with that and that prohibit that from happening and that Congress can't just assume that because it's involved in a global war on terror, that that necessarily means that anyone apprehended under military authority uh, on U.S. soil as a U.S. citizen can be indefinitely detained. This unfortunately became necessary as a result of a provision that was put in rather sneakily, I would add, to the National Defense Authorization Act enacted by Congress back in 2011, the first year I was here in the Senate. And we've been working ever since then to try to fix that provision of law to make clear that we can't authorize that. That can't just be something that can happen willy-nilly. It's one thing to detain someone on a battlefield or for the U.S. to detain an enemy combatant on foreign soil, someone who is not a U.S. citizen. It's quite another to detain a U.S. citizen on U.S. soil, and that shouldn't be something that we can deem statutorily authorized by this Defense Authorization Act passed ill-advisedly by Congress in 2011. So tell me why this one just seems like such a no-brainer to me. <laughs> uh, obviously, you've got uh, Diane Feinstein, who uh, carries a lot of clout and weight with, with her colleagues on the, the Democratic side of the aisle. The two of you have come together uh, really since 2011 to try to get this right. Uh, what is what is the holdup on this one? Uh, it seems so natural and normal that, of course, we're going to not hold U.S. citizens on U.S. Uh, soil. Where are, the, where are the hang-ups on this one? The hang-ups come from those who like to answer all these questions with the answer that just says um, national security. Uh, national security demands it, and we shouldn't hamstring ourselves. Uh, we, we shouldn't limit our ability to detain someone 
who we think is engaged in an act of warfare as an enemy combatant against the United States. My answer to that is that's why we have a Constitution that's at the heart of all of this. And the fact that there, there is a, a statute in the U.S. Code that suggests otherwise is wrong, and we've got to change that. Okay, fantastic. Well, we appreciate you taking time with us uh, on a Wednesday, looking back at uh, your event there, uh, talking about affordable housing, showcasing some great uh, Utah businesses, some great things that need to happen for hardworking American families. Give us, we've we got just about 30 seconds left, Senator. A lot of people who don't follow politics closely, sometimes they'll hear this JEC thing, Joint Economic Committee, uh, that you are the head of. Give us just a little sense of what that is and, and describe, if you can, just quickly what your social capital project is doing uh, as part of the Joint Economic Committee efforts? The Joint Economic Committee, which I currently chair, is one of several committees that are jointly handled by members of the Senate and members of the House of Representatives. And it focuses on the health of the economy uh, and the strength of it. One of the focuses uh, that I've identified as the chairman of the Joint Economic Committee has been on measuring social capital. We in our government have been obsessively focused on economic growth and other key economic indicators. We have sometimes been slow to acknowledge that there are a lot of other features within our society that are very important and important, in fact, to our economic health that are harder to measure, but every bit is important. And they involve things that deal with the way that we interact with each other and that we interact with our communities, with families, neighborhoods, faith organizations, and so forth. So the Social Capital Project involves an effort to try to quantify some of those data, to figure out how the federal government might inadvertently, through its policies, be chilling social interaction and and the development of institutions of civil society. We want to help solve those problems. This is one of those issues that's neither Republican nor Democratic. It's just a common sense issue. Fantastic. Senator Lee, thanks so much for joining us today. Great work on the Joint Economic Committee, your uh, Housing and Urban Development uh, panel, and then also your work with Senator Feinstein on uh, due process guarantee. Great stuff. Uh, Appreciate you joining us from Washington, D.C. today. Thank you, Boyd. When we come back, we'll be joined by Utah's second senator, Senator Mitt Romney, who gave his maiden speech on the floor of the United States Senate yesterday, get his breakdown and his focus on China. Don't go anywhere. Stay with us on Inside Source. Inside Sources with Boyd Matheson on KSL News Radio. Welcome back to Inside Sources. I am Boyd Matheson, opinion editor at the Deseret News. Thanks for joining us on a Wednesday. Uh, As we discussed yesterday, Senator Mitt Romney gave his maiden speech on the floor of the United States Senate yesterday. And it's always interesting to see what new senators do with their first floor speech. Some uh, wax very philosophical. Some uh, go to a a real pet project. And uh, I think Senator Romney did an extraordinary job of getting to something of substance, of policy, uh, an important direction for the country. And we're very pleased to be joined uh, from Washington, D.C., Senator Mitt Romney. Senator, thanks for joining us on Inside Sources. Why, thank you, Boyd, and thank you for listening to my maiden speech. <laughs> uh, well, I thought it was very interesting. Uh, I think there was a lot of speculation about what you would do with your uh, first moment on the floor of the United States Senate, and you chose to go uh, to China with that. Tell us how that came about. Well, you know, I've, I've given a good deal of thought to, to foreign policy issues and, and recognize to what extent we 
we have from time to time ignored foreign policy. After the Second World War, why we, we sort of had the whole world coming to America. They needed to buy our products because, frankly, not only Japan, but Europe was largely bombed out. And, you know, we had the run of the world. Um, and uh, then we faced, of course, a competitor in the Soviet Union, but they were a weak competitor on a lot of fronts and, and folded their cards. But now we face a much more significant competitor. Not only is China an economic powerhouse, but um, but they're also becoming a more and more uh, powerful military powerhouse, and and they are opposing us in every corner, uh, standing up for people like Nicolas Maduro and Kim Jong Un, and uh, it's like wow, these guys are are strong, they're powerful, uh, and they're uh, they're oppositional, uh, they're they're fighting against the cause of freedom, so. It's time for us to sort of wake up and recognize where this is headed and make sure that we develop a, a very thoughtful, comprehensive approach to how we're going to deal with China and maintain the leadership of free nations. I also thought it was interesting that, that you chose to give this speech uh, on the anniversary of Tiananmen Square. I thought that was an interesting uh, touch to the timing. Well, uh, clearly, uh, 30 years ago today, or yesterday rather, the, um, um, the uh, Tiananmen Square massacre occurred. And the Chinese government uh, since then has basically papered over it. They don't even call it a massacre. <clears throat> they don't refer to Tiananmen Square. They just instead talk about uh, uh, the, uh, the, the happenings of that day and the events of that day. And so I think it's important for us to draw more attention to the fact that, that China is, uh, is confronting and, and uh, combating uh, voices of freedom. Uh, that's uh, it's such a, a critical thing, and I I loved how you weaved in not not only the uh, the military component to it, but but just the sheer economics uh, of it all. Walk walk us through just a, for a minute your your thinking. As you mentioned, you've you've had a lot of international uh, experience and foreign relations. You understand all of those things. Uh, give us this how this all connects together in terms of our debt, our economy, and then the military. Well, I think um, it's something we don't give a lot of thought to, but ultimately, a country like China, with four times our population, ought to have an economy that's, well, larger than ours, uh, and they're on track to get there. And, um, uh, you know, as they continue to grow economically and as people go into the middle class, by the way, they have more in the middle class right now in China than we have total population. So as that occurs and their economy is larger and larger and larger, why then they can afford to spend more and more on their military. As they do, their military can outstrip ours. And uh, freedom itself can be in jeopardy. So it's, it's something we need to be aware of. And, and the question is, well, how does a country with a smaller population like ours uh, stay as the leader against someone that's four times our size and that ultimately will have a military larger than ours? And the answer is, by linking our arms with our friends around the world, because America has a lot of friends. We've got a lot of allies. China has very few friends, and the ones they have tend to be really bad, unsavory characters. So we have an advantage when it comes to alliances, and I think it's important for us to uh, nurture those alliances and perhaps do a better job coordinating military planning, coordinating investments, uh, coordinating our trade, um, because we collectively uh, can be a lot stronger than China standing alone. Uh, you mentioned our our friends uh, and and allies. We we do obviously have a, a different set than than what China has. And on a week like this, where we also are going to uh, recognize tomorrow uh, D Day and that important uh, anniversary, an anniversary that will probably uh, be the last uh, with uh, those who are actually there as uh, as those aging 
veterans continue to, to pass away. Uh, what's the significance of our relationships around the world, uh, both as it relates to China, but also just in general? Well, I happen to think that our relationships with other free nations uh, make us have far more in common with those nations than than we have that's different or, or disparate with those free nations. And and I know there are going to be arguments and disagreements, and we're going to have uh, little tussles uh, economically or politically with uh, other nations, but it is very much in our mutual interest to come together the way we did uh, uh, on D-Day uh, 75 years ago and to say, look, all these things, uh, these differences between us are small compared to uh, the attack on freedom. And uh, we came together and we confronted a very strong and hostile foe in, in, in Hitler and were able collectively to, uh, to defeat him and to defeat that foe. And you know, I'm, I'm not categorizing China as an enemy at this stage, I, I, but they're they're poised to to sort of take Russia's place as a geopolitical adversary, and uh, and they're doing all the things that a an adversary might do, uh, which is uh, you know building a, a military that looks to have superiority, uh, getting behind some of the world's worst actors, uh, and and uh, and of course competing on an unfair basis, uh, stealing our technology and so forth. So. Uh, we we uh, we we owe a lot to our our friends in Europe and in uh, um, uh, you know Australia and and Japan and, and various places in the world that have adopted freedom and and love freedom, and we need to link arms with them in a way that will assure us uh, ongoing preservation of the cause of freedom. Uh, you mentioned, and if you're just joining us, uh, we've got Senator Mitt Romney on the line from Washington, D.C., gave his maiden speech on the floor of the United States Senate on Tuesday this week, focused primarily on China. Uh, I loved in the speech how you did give a a very nice Utah moment to your maiden floor speech in, in talking about connections to the driving of the Golden Spike in the anniversary we just celebrated there. Well, I thought it was a, a, a very uh, interesting observation by John Meacham, who was the, um, the keynote speaker at, at Promontory Summit, where he said that much of what was associated with the Transcontinental Railroad success uh, characterized a, a good deal of the, of, the, of the American spirit, that uh, despite great odds, we came together and were able to connect the East Coast and the West Coast. We were able to tame very hostile lands uh, and thereby long-term being able to build a very uh, much stronger economy and brighter future for our people. Uh, and then he also pointed out that there were some weaknesses, that, that the, the concerns of the Native Americans were were not considered and that that the um, uh, the Chinese immigrants, some 15,000 of which helped build that railroad, were not given citizenship. So, you know, in, in many respects, the Transcontinental Railroad experience tells us something about us as a, as a people. And one thing it also tells us in, in a very positive light is that when it comes to making a long-term commitment that will bring us together as a people, that that we're in favor of that and that it, it has a big impact. And right now we need that kind of connection. We need to have uh, leadership in Washington, in our schools, in our homes, in our churches that, that brings us together and that makes sure that we are able, by virtue of our unified strength, to overcome the challenges that we face, regardless of which challenges you think those are, might be and how, how you prioritize them whether you prioritize them the same way I do or a different way. The, the only way, in my opinion, to overcome the kinds of challenges we have 
is with the same kind of unity uh, that was represented uh, so poignantly by the driving of the Golden Spike. Fantastic. Senator Mitt Romney, thanks for joining us on Inside Sources. Wonderful maiden speech. Uh, we look forward to many more to come. Appreciate your work on uh, foreign relations and everything else going on there in Washington, D.C. Thank you, Boyd. Good to be with you again. Thanks once again to both of our United States Senator Mike Lee and Senator Mitt Romney for joining us on Inside Sources today. I am Boyd Matheson, the opinion editor at the Deseret News. And as you go out into the world today, as every day, see something that inspires, say something that uplifts, and do something that makes a difference. We'll join you from Japan tomorrow on Inside Sources. Inside Sources.